Creativity, the fuel that drives innovation and growth, that enables organizations to change and adapt, and the element that spawns new businesses and industries, is full of benefits for leaders who can harness its power. But creativity is rather mysterious to many people, raising questions about what it actually is. Can anyone be creative, or is it only reserved for certain creative types? And can you really create structure and processes to unleash more and consistent breakthroughs? On this iteration of the London Business School podcast, we'll be exploring key themes focused on how leaders can foster more creativity within their organizations, and we have an esteemed panel to discuss such insights. My name is Michael Park, and I'm an assistant professor of organizational behavior at London Business School. I study and teach how to enhance creativity within teams. I'm joined by two brilliant minds who I'll let introduce themselves. Hi, I'm Pier Vittorio Mannucci, and I'm an assistant professor of organizational behavior at LBS as well. And I study how individuals can be creative at different stages of their career. And I'm Molly Amkraut. I'm a business designer and project lead at IDEO, which is a global innovation and design firm. Um, so at IDEO, I lead teams through the design thinking process. And as a business designer, I wear the business hat on a team of designers. And I'm also an LBS alum, class of MBA 2016. Great. Thank you very much for joining us. And we should have a lot of fun talking about creativity today. So on today's podcast, um, we want to discuss three key themes on creativity. And so the first is the creative development of leaders, how leaders can make sure they enhance their creativity throughout their careers. The second is how do we create environments where teams can be creative? And finally, how do we create a creative culture and system at the organizational level? So let's dive in. I think it's probably good that we start with defining what creativity is, because I think there's a lot of misperceptions about what it is and whether, you know, I can be creative or it's only for certain types of people. And so I thought, Pierre, since you come from the research stand standpoint and, and so do I, that you could start us off of how academics define this or how does research look at creativity? Sure. So the, the most widespread definition is that creativity is uh, the generation of novel and useful ideas, outcomes, products, you name it. And I think another thing that scholars have started to realize in, I would say, recent years is that creativity is not this type of magical act that we're kind of trained to think, but is more something that can be trained, actually, especially when it comes to creativity in organizations, is something that everyone can actually do with the proper uh, nurturing, in a way. Oh, nice. So you said kind of new and useful are sort of yeah. the core elements, which means that that can range in how novel and how useful an idea or product can be. Is that, yeah. is that correct? Yeah, exactly. You need both, but of course there are ranges within that, right? So some ideas might be extremely novel, but maybe not so useful. Other ideas can be very, very useful, but maybe not so novel. So it's usually kind of a multiplicative thing, right? So if you have both that are very high, this is where ideas are highly creative. Right. And Molly, how does that gel with your experiences at, at IDEO? Very similar. At IDEO, we really think of creativity as a muscle. It's something that you can get better at over time. And at IDEO, we have tons of tools and processes that enable us and also enable our clients to build their creativity and, and especially their creative confidence. Great. And so this is definitely something you can help foster within any team, any organization, any group of people. Absolutely. I think a common misperception about creativity is that it's unstructured, but actually creativity is a very structured process. And so at IDEO, you know, we go through frameworks and, um, and different processes that unlock creativity at different points in our process. So this idea that 
individuals can be creative and develop their creative. I think that's a great segue to kind of the first theme we want to explore in here about the creative development of leaders. And so with that, I think importantly, how leaders can work on their own creativity and ensure that they can remain creative throughout their careers. And so, Pierre, I know you've done some research on this, looking at different elements of leaders' creativity. Could you could you start us off with some, some of the key findings or some of the, the areas that leaders should be aware of as they're working on their own creativity throughout their careers? Sure. So I think the first thing to keep in mind is that creativity doesn't happen in a vacuum and usually is the byproduct of having interactions with other people. So inspirations and all these and everything that comes to generating ideas, but also to nurturing ideas after they've been generated is oftentimes shaped by the people we interact with. And this is a stream of research that is uh, known as social networks and creativity. And something that has been found more recently is that the different type of ties might be useful for different stages of the creative process, let's say. So if you want to think and divide your social network in acquaintances and friends or weak ties and strong ties, which is the more academic term, if you wish, we can think of weak ties as the source of inspiration, right? You go to someone we don't know, you have a chat with strangers, and this probably spurs uh, a new idea, maybe not immediately, right? There is some incubation happening, but that conversation is probably the seed of something new germinating and coming up afterwards. Mm-hmm. And so weak ties are, are actually good when you want to kind of get inspired in a way. So go out and talk to people is a good way to get some inspiration and get ideas rolling in your mind. And at the same time, however, going to strangers or even to acquaintances when you are trying to elaborate on the idea can actually hurt you in a way because ideas are fragile. There is this metaphor used by Ed Catmull, the former CEO of Pixar, that ideas are ugly babies. And uh, so the initial stage idea is not like good looking as the final stage idea would be. Mm -hmm. So at this stage, you need someone that can give you constructive feedback rather than saying, oh, no, yeah, that's, that's just not working. This is not new. This is not good. This is not useful. Classic feedback that you might get from strangers, whereas what we call strong ties of friends or people who care about you that you trust, I would even say your inner circle of friends Mm. can actually really help you there because they know you, they can give you honest, candid feedback, but at the same time, feedback that is constructive and useful. And they can also give you the support and motivation that is needed to kind of pursue the idea further because we are very... Oftentimes, we don't know if an idea is good, yeah. right? So we need someone to kind of validate it for us. And this is something that even if you look at famous creatives in history, we find consistently as kind of anecdotal evidence. So Alfred Hitchcock used to run all his ideas past his wife, Alma Raville, who was also in the movie making industry. She was an editor and screenwriter. Virginia Woolf, the Bloomsbury Circle, J.R.R. Tolkien at the Inklings, which is another circle of cross friends where they share ideas around them with each other. So he shared, for example, the idea of the Lord of the Rings first with C.S. Lewis, which was one member of the circle. So how you carefully manage your network in different stages is actually very important for that. For leaders, yeah. So I think that's a great point because I think oftentimes people don't necessarily think about using their network as much or being um, strategic about it. And so what you're saying, I hear you say, is that for new ideas, it's really good to meet new people or talk with people you haven't caught up with in a while just to see what's going on. And that may spill over some ideas into your work. And then when you want to develop them, though, it's really important to use those close ties, those people you trust 
in order to get useful and constructive and probably honest and candid feedback. Is that yeah. right? Yes, exactly. And uh, it's also something that is very important because we tend to over-rely. This is something we're also finding in a more recent study. We tend to over-rely on strong ties mm. uh, for creativity because we perceive it as risky, right? It's kind of a uh, sharing an idea is a part of sharing ourselves or exposing ourselves in a way. So because of this perception, we tend to go to strong ties because they, they are safer. Mm -hmm. But when you want to generate, you actually have to be able to, as you said, go to someone that you haven't spoken to in a while, which is academic terms is called activating the ties. So the tie is there, but you have to actually use it strategically, yeah. as you said. Otherwise, it's kind of like not having it if you never interact with these people, yeah. right? That's great. So Molly, in your experience, where, where do leaders at IDEO get their source of inspiration, their ideas? Where, where do they come from or how is that encouraged at your company? Yeah, so I think it's really important for leaders and really anyone to get outside the office mm. and get outside, you know, talk to people besides just the people they work with every day. So at IDEO, we will often start our projects by getting out into the world. We'll talk with users, of course. We'll often talk with extreme users, people who, you know, maybe use a type of product, you know, 10 times a day or something like that, who can give us kind of an extreme view that we can learn from. We'll also look for analogous examples, whether that's companies or even, you know, a stretch like going to see something in nature that might be analogous to a system that we're looking at in a business. And then just, you know, chatting with lots of different people, like experts who can give us different perspectives in the space that we're looking at. That's great. So there's really this focus on, on going out and exploring in sometimes random or new directions that you may not necessarily associate to the problems or the task at hand. Is that correct? Absolutely. And, you know, we understand that not everything we do is going to be absolutely meaningful. It, you know, you go out and you kind of go wide and you look at a lot of different things and hopefully some of them are really inspiring and some of them maybe not. And then you come back and synthesize that with your team in kind of a safer environment to figure That's out what great. you learned. Yeah. So there's a lot of overlap there. And, and I'm curious now, it sounds like this is also supported practice of the company, where so people don't have to do this on their own time. Are you given time to like actually go out and explore? Is that sort of part of your work? Absolutely. It shows up in a couple ways at IDEO, actually. When we're on projects, every project, this is built into our process. It's usually, you know, the first week we'll be going out and doing a lot of these activities, but then also later in the process, just to make sure that we're staying inspired, we'll go out and do that too. And then just more Broadly, at IDEO, we have kind of a, a unspoken policy around 20% time. And it's sort of understood that you can take time away from your daily work to go out into the world and meet people, see things, experience new things, or even just, you know, read and consume content to make sure that you stay inspired. That's great. That's wonderful. So one of the ideas that we keep hearing is this trust about learning and exploring and, and giving that to people to both search and find new ideas, but also trust within a team to be able to develop them critically. So that's great. So on this notion of leaders, what else do you find in the research, Pierre, that is important in terms of over time, right? So obviously, leaders develop their careers and they go through different stages of their career. And I think you've done some research here that shows that you may need different types of development or awareness of different types of knowledge at different stages of their careers. Is that correct? 
Yeah, so there is this stereotype that uh, creativity is young, right? If you think creative, you tend to think of young people. We have these uh, images of geniuses like Mozart, very precocious. But actually, in reality, creativity is for all ages in a way, right? And uh, there are many, many examples of uh, inventors, designers, professionals, entrepreneurs that are successful, very even more successful, actually, than young ones later in their careers, right? So something that is uh, coming out from the research now is that it's not so much that career age kind of hampers creativity so that creativity declines over time, but probably the fact that the needs, so what you need to be stimulated in order to be creative over time changes, right? The process itself of being creative changes. There is some early research in psychology that defined creativity in young age and uh, old age as hot and cold creativity in the sense that young age is more passionate, more instinctive, let's say, whereas the process when you, as you grow older becomes more rational, more structured in a way. And something that we find in the research is that in terms of knowledge, for example, specialization is actually very useful at the beginning of your career because you need to uh, kind of know the boundaries of the domain before being able to push them, right? Otherwise, you enter a domain, you think something is criminal and then it has been done multiple, multiple times. Whereas as you grow older, as you stay in your job for longer, actually diversifying can help because otherwise you get stuck in the same ways of thinking. You always work on the same stuff. So you kind of start seeing everything through the same lens, right? Uh, if, you, if you have a hammer, everything looks like a nail and so on. So there is this idea that as you progress of the career, you should actually try to diversify your type of knowledge, and you can do it with something like the 20% time is ideal, getting inspired. But even the company can actually provide you with more diverse you know, uh, tasks, more diverse exposure. So the rotation that oftentimes companies adopt early on in the career might actually be more beneficial in later stages if creativity is your objective, which, yeah. of course, depends. Yeah, I think that's great. So not only paying attention to where you're getting ideas and how you're developing them, but also what kind of knowledge you're acquiring over your career. So early on, very useful to specialize, know something quite well, but as you gain more experience later in life, then to diversify because you might see connections that are distal from other areas of knowledge and, and be able to implement them. So I think that's, that's quite useful. Another important thing for leaders to think about and consider is Sometimes leaders get stuck in wanting to be the most creative person or being that person with the best ideas and bringing that forward. However, there's a transition in leadership that needs to occur from being the person with the best ideas to creating a team environment that allows others to also contribute their creative ideas. And with that, you need to start thinking about how you're leading the team and how you're facilitating creativity within that team. And I think that creates some different actions leaders take to help bring out that creativity within those teams. So let's move on to that topic. And the first one I want to bring up is brainstorming. And so you talk about brainstorming. Everyone's probably been involved in a brainstorm process at some point. And the research is clear on this. And also you hear practical examples that most organizations and teams don't do this very well. They get people together, someone says an idea, they kind of build off of that, but there's not really a structure or process or, or sort of rules around brainstorming. And what we found from the research as well as what Molly, you will share, is you can actually create much more insights if you are intentional and strategic about that. So why don't we start with you, Molly, and talk about how does IDEO do their brainstorming and what are some of the key things that allow this to be a better process for you? 
I think there's two really important tools or kind of sets of rules that we use in brainstorming. The first tool is called the how might we question. And this is a really important tool for us because you it's really important that you frame the question right before you get into brainstorming. And so it's called the how might we question. And each of those three words is quite important. The how implies confidence in our ability to find a solution. Might implies that there are many right answers and no one way is the right way. We can talk about a lot of different ideas. And the we implies that we're going to do this collaboratively. This isn't just me coming up with ideas on my own. This is a team effort. So once you have the right question, then you can get into brainstorming. And we have seven rules of brainstorming that we actually put on the wall in all of our project spaces and we look at every time we do a brainstorm. Here are the seven rules. First is defer judgment. Second is encourage wild ideas. Third is build off the ideas of others. Then stay focused on the topic. One conversation at a time. Be visual and go for quantity, not quality. So these rules help establish sort of a safe environment that enables people to feel really free in the ideas that they're putting up on the wall. Um, and it and it enables people to also build off the ideas of others. And I think one of the really important ones here is the quantity, not quality. When you're brainstorming, you just want to get as many ideas on the wall as you can. And later you can evaluate those and see which ideas merge together. But you don't want to focus on quality because that will in- inhibit your creativity at the time. That time. And I think that's a really important aspect to bring out is that in creativity, there are two different phases. There's the generation phase, which is coming up with really different and a lot of different ideas. But then there's also the elaboration phase, which is developing them further, refining them, um, getting feedback, evaluating them. And it's important to know this because I think often what happens is teams don't necessarily engage in good generation because they block people from coming up with ideas and then they lower people's confidence and then maybe people have a sense of fear that they can't offer wild ideas when a lot of the rules and the processes you were talking about get at that. But then you don't want to just stop there. You know, organizations don't just want a lot of bad ideas. You want to start to improve upon them and develop them. And that's really the elaboration phase. And I think noticing that and also a couple of the themes, um, Molly, that you touched upon really resonate with the research around team creativity. And a couple of those are having what is known as sort of psychological safety. And that's where people feel safe and encouraged and confident to take interpersonal risks. And what that means is admitting mistakes, failing, learning from mistakes, speaking up with crazy ideas that might appear dumb on the surface. And really to to facilitate that within the team is really important. And so often what we find is that leaders set the tone. If they're willing to engage in those behaviors that create a safe environment, such as allowing people to speak their minds freely, having people be okay with making mistakes or, or suggesting dumb ideas, or as, in, as what you say, there are no dumb ideas early on, then this can create a safe environment. And so that's really important. And then the other key process, which actually is a, relates to some of the work I've been doing with my colleagues, is around this emotional authenticity. And so what we find is that teams that have an environment where they feel safe and supported to express different kinds of emotions are actually more creative. And what we find is that it allows them to 
elaborate on the information more that they're discussing. And so what I mean by that is the creative process can be quite emotional at times. People get excited about different ideas. They might be confused. They might be frustrated and want to fix problems. And when groups of people feel free to express those emotions without really thinking through them and the content along with them, that allows them to have these good discussions in a supportive way. However, when they feel constrained and say, you know, we need to have a professional environment, we can't express any emotions, that actually we find that constrains the amount of information discussed, developed, and shared among the teams. And we studied that in quite an interesting way. We actually brought teams together in a lab where under this guise of we wanted them to develop creative ideas to market and sell the LBS backpack, the LBS signature backpack. And so we brought in this actress who modeled these two different types of climates where one was, hey, I want you to be authentic and really share how you're feeling about the work that you're doing and coming up with. And the other where she said, we want to keep a very professional environment, no emotions allowed. And what we found after testing these teams in these two different conditions is that the teams in the authentic environment came up with much more creative ideas. And so this was a way we kind of experimented with this and we further replicated it in the field with some, with some um, survey and field data. But it was really interesting to see that not only do people need to be able to, to feel safe to express ideas, but actually because emotions are inherently tied to developing ideas and elaborating them, having that freedom and supportive environment around that is also really important. And so I'm curious, uh, Molly, because in, in the research, this is somewhat new stuff that's coming out. Do you see any connections with the work you do at IDEO? I think you're absolutely right, Michael, that the design thinking and creativity processes have a lot of highs and lows. So you'll go out and you'll be inspired and you'll come back into the studio and you'll be so excited and you'll come up with all these great ideas and then you'll go out and test your ideas with users. And sometimes this just happened um, with me on a, a recent client project. We went out to test our first set of ideas and the users hated them. They hated every single one. And so we came back into the studio and our clients and the IDEO team was completely deflated. Um, So that was a real low. I think what really helps in that process is being really clear about when you can expect those highs and lows in the process. So we actually, in that project, put our entire design thinking process on the wall. And we actually used emojis to indicate where we expected to feel excited and stimulated, but also where we expected to feel a bit nervous, where the high ambiguity points were going to be so that when people were feeling a bit lost, really uncertain with the process, they could actually look at the wall and see what the emoji said they were supposed to be feeling at that moment. And that really enabled them to understand, yeah, it's okay that I feel a bit lost and a bit stuck right now that's actually just part of the process and that's totally fine and you know in a few days time or maybe even a few hours I know that we're going to get past that. That's great and it really highlights again two key points about this is that creativity is emotional process and the highs and lows and having the supportive environment through those emotions help teams and individuals overcome that and be resilient and keep pushing and I think acknowledging it and trying to resolve those feelings is an important part of that process. And then the other thing that's really interesting about creativity is a lot of times it's hard to put into objective or technical language why you think an idea is good, right, at an early stage. And people will have these 
intuitive, maybe emotional reactions about good and bad that they need to be able to express and then follow up on and develop and then elaborate. Say, okay, why do I think this is so exciting? But at, at first, without being able to express that, then you may not actually further elaborate on those ideas. And I think that's a really cool process that you're doing at IDEO. So thanks for sharing. So great. We've covered leaders' development of their creativity. We've covered some key themes around creating creative teams. Now I think let's move to culture. Let's move to the organization and talk about what are some of these themes we're seeing in the research as well as in practical examples about how can you create a creative company and so what those key themes are. And I think I want to start with this idea of values. So we know values is an inherent part of culture. And with that, what are some of the key values that may drive creativity, right? And so, Molly, why don't you start us off? Because I think IDEO does a great job at this, and they've been renowned for their ability to create creativity over and over again. What are your values there, and, and how do you see some of those affecting how people work together? Sure. So IDEO has seven values that we talk about a lot. And actually, every new employee at IDEO, um, when you join the company, you get the little book of IDEO, which has our seven values in it. So the seven values are make others successful, embrace ambiguity, be optimistic, collaborate, take ownership, learn from failure, and talk less, do more. And I think these really show up a lot in our work. I think it's interesting if you ask an IDEOer, everyone will identify with different ones of those seven values a bit differently. I think one that I find um, really important to me at IDEO is make others successful. So, so much of our work is collaborative and we're always working in teams. And I think IDEO is a place where it's really not about your individual impact to a project. It's really about what the team can do together. And I think when you have a team structure like that, it really enables everybody to give their best and really do what's good for the team and for the project and for the client. And so I really feel that in my everyday work. It's about making others successful and and, in doing so, making the client and that project successful. Yeah, and I think that, you know, a lot of times – workplaces can be these competitive environments, right? And you can have healthy competition or competition that actually drives behaviors that you don't want. And so having a value like that where how can you make others successful or you're you're evaluated on how much you make others successful, I think drives the right kind of competition where we want to compete together as a team to come up with the best ideas possible as opposed to individually, I want to come up with the best ideas possible. Is that kind of what you see with that? Yeah, absolutely. So, Pierre, you study a lot of companies as well in their creative processes. Is there anything you can add from a cultural standpoint or these values or things that you see other companies doing successfully? Well, I think one of the values Molly just mentioned, which is the learn from failure at IDEO, is resonating with a lot of other companies. So Pixar has this idea, for example, of failing fast, right? So it's not eliminating failure, but it's actually failing fast to kind of minimize the cost, but early on you have to be, pre- to be prepared to be wrong in order to come up with something original, right? This is kind of paraphrasing also uh, Ken Robinson's book about creativity. If you are not prepared to be wrong, if you don't create a culture that makes failure a learning opportunity rather than a missed opportunity or something that you should be blamed for, you will never come up with anything original. And uh, recently, there has also been some uh, work also from LBS faculty, Ermini Barra and Anita Ratan on Microsoft and the new culture they're trying to implement. 
And there is this shift from know-it-all to learn-it-all, as they phrase it. And a lot of that, of that has to do with the fact that you have to try new things, and some of them will fail, and that's fine, and you'll learn from it, and you'll grow from it. So a lot of the growth comes from being ready to embrace failure and understanding what went wrong to do it better the next time. So Pixar has a lot of stuff also going in this direction. Even after projects that have been successful, they try to learn from what went wrong. So they have this uh, practice that they call postmortems that they do every single time after a movie. So even when the movie was super successful, they do that. And it's something that makes people very uncomfortable because it's an ambiguous process. So going back also to the value of the embracing the ambiguity, right? But it's something that they found to be extremely important for them to grow and learn and become better creatives over time. And I think resonating also with the emotional part we talked about before, there is this culture of candor, right? I really like what Ed Katmus says about that, that he doesn't like the word honesty because honesty has this kind of moral implication to it, that you're being dishonest. So he likes better the word candor because it's not about being honest or dishonest, moral or immoral, but it's about sharing your emotional reactions, your feedback in a way that is useful, right? So if you restrain from saying what you actually think, or if you say what you actually think in a very aggressive way, for example, in a too much aggressive way, that doesn't help anyone. But feedback early, even very early on in the process, uh, Pixar and Disney now, after the acquisitions slash merger, let's say, have this idea of the brain trust, right? Which is senior people that you can go to at any time during the life of a creative project to share ideas with and get this candid feedback and help you understand what's working, what's not working. So again, going back to also learning from failure, which I think is a key element. Yeah, and I think I think this learning of, from failure is, is important to um, couch in the context of creativity, right? These are teams and organizations trying to do something new, trying to create new innovations. And because some of the pushback I get when we, we talk about this as learning from failure is like, well, we have to succeed in some things. We have to make money, right? We need to, to not fail all the time. Otherwise, we'll go bankrupt or we won't, we'll not be able to be successful. And so I'm curious, Molly, how does Adio handle that balance between success and failure? And, you know, is it something where you can fail, but you, let's not make the same mistake twice? Or is it trying to create the failures internally more so that you're more successful with the clients when you, when you pitch the products? How do you try to balance those two things? I think it comes down to our iterative approach. So it's okay to fail in the project space. It's actually totally okay to fail with the client there too. It's I think our clients come to us for a different approach, and it's really important that they see the failures along the way because they're trying to learn that process. But the fact that we have such an iterative approach means that we've never invested so much money that when we fail, it's going to be a really big deal. You know, we have checks along pretty much every step of the process. And even when we hand back over to the client, we've still built a roadmap for them that enables them to continue having checks throughout. So they're never going to invest millions and millions in something that hasn't been tested at every step of the way. So I really like this notion of the iterative process. And because what that basically means in other terms that's been talked about is prototyping or experimenting and setting up these mini experiments that are much less costly, a lot less use of time, and to actually test what you're thinking and therefore adapting based on those little tests. And that is a way to 
create boundaries around failure so that it's not so costly for the teams and the organization and allows you to be successful much faster. And so I think that's something to keep in mind because this is underutilized where a lot of companies try to plan and come up with the best idea and the best solution, spend a lot of time and resources, and then when they try to implement it, realize that that doesn't go as planned and, and therefore they have to start again. So having a process where it's much more iterative and being able to design experiments can be very useful. And I think the other thing that I want to say with that is also this isn't for everyone. This isn't for every organization. If you want just incremental growth, you know, not needing to change that much, not new and useful ideas, yeah, maybe you don't need this. But that environment is probably becoming less and less acceptable and less and less successful in, in modern day age of business. And so bringing some of these tools in can really help. And I think, Molly, you, you had something you wanted to say more about, about this iterative process. I was just going to say we have a great saying at IDEO where we say, if a picture is worth a thousand words, a prototype is worth a thousand meetings. So I think that just goes to show, you know, really prototypes are go so far in testing ideas and getting your point across. Just to your point about prototyping. Yeah, and, and keep in mind, I think it's really important for people to understand that a prototype doesn't have to be a three-dimensional object or a creation of something. It's not just for new products or, or things like that, but it can be a sketch or a drawing or, or a proposal, whatever that is in their, in their industry, a draft of a new outline for a, a book or something like that. But having those and going through that iteration process is really important, so prototyping can be really valuable for that. So we talked a lot about culture and the values that enable these effective cultures. I want to turn now to rituals and practices, right? Because it's important that companies bring this culture to life and they can support that with certain rituals and practices and routines that they do over and over again. And I'm curious, Molly, at IDEO, do you have any of those things you do repeatedly that kind of help instill the culture and, and support these behaviors that you want from people there? Yeah, so as I mentioned, inspiration and collaboration are, are huge at IDEO, and one way that we bring that to life is through a ritual called Monday morning meetings. So every week, we start the week with the whole studio getting together and sharing breakfast, and over breakfast, we'll share inspiration so anyone can put a slide into the deck of something that they found in the world that's inspiring, whether it's a new business model from a startup, or maybe they went to an exhibition at a museum that weekend that they found really inspiring, so people will share those things, and then we'll do project updates from the project teams, which is a good way of sharing with the studio what you're up to in your project space and enables you to gain more input from other people in the studio for your project. And then we'll do a quick update on what's in the pipeline. And that kind of shows our transparency at IDEO and how really everyone can see what new projects are coming in and raise their hand for what they might want to work on. I like that. And so it's great in terms of living those values that you're trying to preach and it's a it's a nice routine to get people in the habit of that and I think it's nice to compare that with what Pierre talked about at Pixar in terms of the brain trust meetings where people go to get feedback and elaborate on that in a safe space as well as the post-mortem so they're learning through failure so you can also have spaces and rituals to elaborate and have ideas but also as sources of inspiration and knowledge sharing that may spark new ideas and new innovations further so that's that's really good I think the last thing we'd like to talk about in terms of, of a culture or a system of an organization that 
creates creativity is technology, right? We're in this digital world now, and I think it's really important to understand how technology can affect creativity. And, and for that, peer, I, I want you to share about some of the research we're doing around social media and creativity, for example. What, what have we been finding around the effects of social media on people's ability to be creative in the workplace? Does it help? Does it hurt? What, what, are, what are you finding there? Yeah, so uh, we started with this idea of uh, observation, actually, of the fact that co some companies tend to prohibit social media to work, right? And uh, we thought, yeah, the, the reasoning behind it is that, of course, if you use social media, you might lose time, not be focused on your task, and so on. But at the same time, looking at it from a creativity perspective, there is a lot to be said about how using social media of different kinds can actually give you exposure and access to sources of inspiration, right? So. We went to the field and to the lab to see what happens when people actually use social media in terms of uh, creative process engagement. So does it increase their likelihood to, to engage in the creative process and therefore their creativity? And what we found is, of course, uh, takes away some time from work, right, from the task, but it increases this willingness to engage in uh, search for information, inspiration, putting two and two together, so kind of combining ideas and so on. And this is something that in the research in, in scholarship is called creative process engagement, but it's actually very important because if people don't engage in the creative process, and this is also something Molly talked about before, they're not able to generate ideas, of course, if you don't even try, right? And this is something we did in the field. And in the, in the lab, we added like a little bit of twist to that to try to see if there is a way to kind of maximize the benefits and minimize the negatives, which is the more, you know, the, the losing time part. So we gave instructions to the participants about using social media responsibly, right? So we didn't prohibit them like some companies do. We didn't just tell them, use social media as much as you like. We also told them in a third condition, use social media responsibly. And what we found is that this very simple intervention actually took away or minimized a lot the negative part and still kept the positive part of creative process engagement alive, let's say. So I think this can be have very interesting implications of how companies manage. And again, the culture of social media use or responsible social media use uh, at work can actually benefit creativity in organizations. Yeah, that's great. So social media can have these mixed effects on creativity. Yeah. On the one hand, it can lead to new ideas, searching information, using your networks for these ideas and, and getting this information. But on the other hand, we know these platforms are made to be addicting and it can yeah. distract you from your work. So you're saying in the work we've done, having this nudge, this prompt for people to be more responsible in terms of their social media use can allow them to still receive those creative benefits while minimizing that distracting. And I think that's important also to keep in mind the culture and how people embrace these technologies and allowing people to use them, but also reminding them, hey, we're at work, let's use this responsibly so that they keep in mind to, to manage their time well and not just be distracted in the day-to-day -day operations. Yeah, it's also logic if you think about it of empowerment, right? You're letting people choose whether they want to use them or not, and they're you're letting people realize how much is too much, right? Which I think is very important going back to this idea of take ownership that Molly was also talking about. This is specific to social media use, but it's a general idea that is very important as a value and as a kind of culture slash climate for the use of social media and technology more broadly at work. Great.
So fostering creativity in organizations, today we have discussed the creative development of leaders, how to develop teams to be more creative, and the culture and different rituals and practices that companies can use to foster this creativity within their organization. What I thought we could do though is, because we explored a lot of different key insights and practical examples, we can finish with each sharing one sort of key message or takeaway or something leaders can go out and do today to increase the creativity in their teams. And so why don't we go around and, and say that. And so Molly, why don't you start us off and say, what, what's your kind of one key takeaway for our listeners today? I think if you're a leader in your organization, it's so important that you get out and meet your customers. So I'd say today, go out into the world and find a customer of your product or service. Maybe sketch a quick idea you have and bring it with you and show it to them. Get their feedback, learn how they're using your product and service, and just chat with them. Pierre? Uh, I would say use your networks, uh, expand your networks, but also use them wisely. So know when you need inspiration and go outside and meet people. Know when you need actually to think about it and use your inner circle to help you. And at the same time, encourage also your employees to do the same. Great. And for me, it's about the team, creating that trust and that safe environment. And one way that's been shown to do that over and over again is what I call the three C's, which is consult, seek input, ask people, make sure they're speaking up with their ideas. Consider it. Celebrate those that are speaking and sharing their ideas. Consider what they're saying and don't just overlook it. And then finally, closure, providing closure or feedback of where their ideas are going. Are you continuing that and developing it or are you putting it to bed because it's not ready or it's not the right idea for this moment? And so creating that trust in that environment where people feel comfortable to speak up and share their ideas leaders can engage in those three C's. So with that, I want to thank Molly Pierre for joining us today in this wonderful conversation about creativity. Thank you. Thank you. And thank you very much for listening to our podcast on creativity. For more podcasts about different topics that leaders need to pay attention to to become a better leader or to increase the effectiveness of their organization, please find these on london.edu. Thank you very much. Mm-hmm.